Okay, let's pray. Well, Father, we do come before you today, and we're so grateful, Lord, to be in your church, Lord, to be in your house. Lord, we're so grateful that we have your word in our midst, Lord, that we have a, a revelation um, that is faithful and trustworthy, that we can build our life on the rock of your truth and the gospel and... Um, Father, we're grateful that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us because without that, of course, Lord, we would be in darkness and we would be lost. So we're thankful, Lord, that you are a God of revelation, that you are the revealer God. And uh, Lord, I just pray you lead us today. Give us wisdom, guide our discussion and help us to uh, to learn from one another and uh, from your word, what it means for you to reveal yourself to man. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are talking today about the doctrine of... Uh, theologians tend to differ a bit on how they describe this, but the doctrine of divine revelation, um, other systematic theologians would say just quite simply the doctrine of the Word of God, okay? Um, uh, sorry. Just give you a fancy G. That's all that is. A fancy one. Um, the, the doctrine of the Word of God. And in your mind, if you're thinking, why did you go with divine revelation and not the doctrine of the Word of God? Um, the reason why is because I think the older theologians had it right. <laughs> when you think about the doctrine of the Word of God, what do you think about? Word of God, it's axiomatic, it's self-evident, right? So what is it? When you, What are you thinking about? Recorded accounts of, of God, of Jesus Christ, coming as Savior, Old Testament. So you're, you're thinking about the Bible. Yeah. Correct. And when we talk about the doctrine of divine revelation... The Bible is certainly included, but that is not the only means of revelation that God has given. Okay, uh, So, I think the very first thing before we get to the different types of revelation, okay, uh, we need to simply ask the question uh, or make the case for the fact of revelation. So, turn with me to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, okay, because there... You have this idea that God is a revealer, that God is a revelatory God, okay? And those are kind of the terms of the vocabulary that you want to use for that. He is a revealer. He's, you know, he's a revelatory God. He's a God of revelation. We're not talking about the book of Revelation, right? By the way, it's not revelations. <laughs> I can't believe I still hear that. You would think after all this time, it's the book of Revelation, right? Not Revelations. <laughs> Even though there's a lot of Revelations. Yeah, that's right. But really, Revelation has to do more with God's self-disclosure. Who wants to read for us Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3? Anyone want to read? Ryan, you're there? Sure. Yeah? God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, 
whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of the glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, you know that um, verses 1 and 2 speaks about revelation. He spoke long ago, and then in these last days has spoken. But I read verse 3 for a reason, and uh, we'll get to that, okay? But this just simply establishes the fact of revelation, that God is a revelatory God that reveals himself to man. And so, in other words, this is what it means for God to be there and not to be silent. That's kind of an old Francis Schaeffer uh, you know, uh, saying. God is there and he is not silent. Our God is a God of revelation. Right? It's amazing how people say, where is God and why, why doesn't God speak to us? And I'm like, well, have you read this? I mean... <laughs> You know, God has spoken to us quite exhaustively. He gave us a whole encyclopedia of knowledge uh, for us to learn and to get to know him and to know ourselves rightly. And, of course, that boils down to an attack on the sufficiency of God's revelation in Scripture. But, um, but in other words, God is a God who speaks, and furthermore, he's a God that has chosen to reveal himself. Now, that's crucial because God, I suppose, God could have, if he wanted to, in his sovereign uh, pleasure, if he wanted to, he could have been like the deistic type of God. You guys know what this is? Uh, do you know what this word is? Deism? Okay, did I print Is that backwards? Should it be like this? There you go. Yeah. Okay. So what does deism mean? God Anybody? that doesn't interact with his creation. A does God that doesn't interact. Watchmaker? Okay. And explain the watchmaker because people are like, huh? Uh, well, it's that God originally had wound everything up, so to speak, and then sits back, and then now things just, time just ticks along without his intervention. Correct. Correct. Uh, yeah, that's right. Deism is essentially the belief in an impersonal God. God is not involved in his creation. And uh, this belief is actually very popular today, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, how, how many times have you heard people say, well, I believe in a God that's out there, right? I don't deny that there is a deity up there and that he exists, okay? What they're saying is that they believe in a God that really is not involved, <laughs> that really doesn't care how they live their lives or what's going on on planet Earth, right? He's not really concerned. I, I've actually heard people say that like, 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 if God is God, what does he care, you know, um, what I do with my body? What does he care about that? Why does he care? Well, because God is the opposite of the deistic God. God is a personal God. He is eminent. He is, um, he is transcendent, meaning he is above all of us. But he's also eminent, meaning that he is near to everyone, as Paul says in Acts chapter 17. Um, so God has chosen to make himself known. Now that's glorious news for us because that means that we can know who God is. That that is not if man were to try to reach out to God and try to find God somehow, right? It would be a futile exercise. Now, where do you see that? Where do you see people trying to reach out to God on their own? Maybe I wasn't right about that. Huh? Can anybody think of any Old Testament examples of man trying to reach up to God? What's that? Yeah, sit. 
See, so we can, we, I want to hear the answer. There you go. Okay. <laughs> babble. He's over there. Babble. Are you babbling? What's going on over there? That's right. The Tower of Babel. You know, the Tower of Babel is an amazing thing. You guys know what the story of the Tower of Babel is about. The Tower of Babel is about Jesus Christ. And, you know, I know some of you are like, okay, uh, is that a trick question statement? Right. Well, the Tower of Babel was an ancient uh, uh, building that was constructed. That were very common in those in, in, in back in those days. That and and the Tower of Babel was known to have this giant platform on top of it, which was known as the doorway to heaven. The door. Okay. Now we know who the true door into heaven is, right? Jesus said, "What? I am the door." Am the door right. So. So that is just a, a picture of man's futile attempt to try to reach God on his own without the assistance of divine revelation, without a sure guide, a sure word to know who God really is and how to get to him. So all of man, without God's revelation, all of men are doomed to a Babel experience, to a Babel-like enterprise where they can try to build their towers to heaven, but they will not reach um, one systematic theology. Robert Raymond, he, he starts his systematic theology on this doctrine in a really fascinating way. He begins by talking about uh, space, deep space exploration. And he talks about how billions of dollars have been spent, man going into space and looking for what? looking for a word from the outside, right? They're looking for some alien voice to speak to them, right? Because we know we, we feel alone in the universe and there must be someone out there. And I don't know how many trillions of dollars man is going to have to spend to learn that they should have just picked up the Bible, right? Because... The Bible is a word from another world. Jesus is, if you would, the alien par excellence. He is the prototypical alien who came to us from the realm of endless days. He comes to us from outside of the system and um, discloses himself to, to us. Okay, so types of revelation. Let's begin with one uh, known as general General revelation. Can you guys read that? Felix was making fun of me and saying you guys can't read anything I'm writing. That's not true. It's more of your pen. I mean, John is. <laughs> you mean you don't like my calligraphy that I do? John can read it all the way in the back, so that's good. It all looks like Spanish. That's true. It's all Greek to me, right? Um, okay, so under the under the heading of general revelation, I want to put two other words. Okay. Conscience and creation. Uh, conscience and creation. Let's turn to Romans chapter 2. That is to say that without the Bible, in a sense, God has given man revelation. Uh, man is a revelatory being, not only because 
not 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 mainly because he becomes the instrument of God's revelation that too but he also becomes the receptacle of God's revelation he receives the revelation of God Re, uh, Romans chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 um, perhaps someone can read that Jason you want to read that for us Which one, uh, is someone there are you there Romans 2 14 and 15. I have you read because it gives me a moment to catch my breath. So, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, Ozzy, can you read for us Psalm 147? Beginning in verse 19, 19 to 20, okay? 147? Yeah, and just go there, 147, 19, and 20, because we know one thing about the Gentiles. If there's one thing we know about the Gentiles is that they do not have the Bible, okay? Uh, scripture labors to point that out. You have verses like Ephesians, right? Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 11 and 12, that makes it very clear that uh, the Ephesian Gentiles were at one point alienated from God. They, 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 they were outside of the covenants, outside of the promises. They, they had no hope, no without God, without hope. And um, in the Old Testament, this will really test your worship, okay? But uh, let's see if there are any contemporary worship songs written like this today. Uh, go ahead, Ozzy. Uh, he declares his words to Jacob, his statues and his ordinance to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation, and as for his ordinance, they have not known that. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The psalmist is praising the Lord that only the nation of Israel is the privileged nation that has God's words. He says he declares his words to Jacob. Now there, Jacob, it's not talking about the person Jacob. Jacob is at that point embodying the whole nation, okay? Israel, his ordinances to Israel, and he has not dealt in this way with any other nation. I don't know what was going on in Australia when this was happening in Israel, but I'll tell you one thing, in Australia they did not have the ordinances of the Lord. They did not have the religion of Yahweh, but they did have general revelation. According to Romans chapter 2, they had conscience and, let's stop there, they had conscience. And what does conscience do? Isn't conscience an amazing thing? Mm -hmm. um, does everybody here have a conscience? Mm -hmm. You better raise your hand. <laughs> okay. um, is the conscience part of you? Mm -hmm. Is it an aspect of your humanness? Yes, right? Yeah. Do you have any control over your conscience? Can you control your con can you tell your conscience stop recording? No, but you can harden it. Yeah. You can harden it. You're right. You can suppress the conscience. You can harden the conscience. You can sear the conscience. But you cannot rid yourself of the conscience. It's going to be there to the day you die, and then even then further into eternity, when you come into judgment, 
your conscience, your own conscience, God will call into, into judgment every thought of man. Your conscience will be like the, like the prosecuting witness on the stand, agreeing with God's judgment that he renders, his verdict, saying, when he says guilty, the conscience will say, amen. I saw it all. I heard everything. I was there. So God has given to man this conscience, um, and his great comfort has belabored to point out to us, the word conscience is a compound word, meaning con and science. Con is with, science is knowledge. So it means that man does what he does with knowledge of what he's doing. Yes, sir. And I ask you on that, um, would it be your opinion that conscience is both immediate and mediated? Is it immediate? Immediate. Therefore, if someone has to, if they have to think through things, they're not held guilty until they think, think, think things through. Or is it both immediate and then say more exhaustive later as they learn? Yeah, I think it's both immediate and immediate mm -hmm. knowledge. Yeah. What do you think? Well, the reason why I would say yes, but because some people don't hold, you're not, let's say, a sinner or whatever it is, you're neutral until you've uh, been given certain knowledge. Okay, yeah. So we would say, no, it's always. Right. right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's what, um, that's what the, um, Raza, right? I think it's Raza, something like that. Yeah, tabula rasa means blank slate. And that's the, the, the phrase that the old philosophers like Thomas Aquinas and Pelagius and some of these men have used to describe the condition of man. When they are born, they are born a blank slate. They are born morally neutral. They don't, the noetic effects of sin do not affect them to a certain degree. They still have free will, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, Today, I think that modern psychology, it's yes. either that we're blank or that we're basically good. Yep. It's yeah. usually either in the middle or on the positive side. Yeah. The way that people view humanity. Yeah, that's right. Humanity. Yeah. How many people have told me, you know, um, when I walk them through the conscience, you know, let's say at UNT or something, they say, boy, I wish I could get rid of my conscience. You know, <laughs> they know that their conscience is there recording everything. And, uh, but according to Romans here, it says that, that, that we're dealing with a category of Gentiles that do not have the law. They don't have the law, but an amazing thing still happens. It says instinctively they do, the, uh, they do the things of the law. Instinctively. Now that word is an interesting word, um, but it just basically means that they do it out of, uh, uh, out of uh, uh, just the, the natural disposition within them and it says these having not a law they are a law unto themselves in other words they there's a moral there's a self-governing element in the conscience it helps them to govern even though they don't have god's laws written down they are capable or they have the capacity to deduce laws from their conscience and it says this in that they show the work of the law written on their hearts now now, be careful there in verse 15. There's a reason why Paul says they show the work of the law. He doesn't just say they show the law on their heart. Okay? Because the law on the heart is a technical description of a person who has been 
regenerated, a person who has been born again, right? Uh, David has God's law written in his heart. The new covenant in Jeremiah 31, right? The promise is that he will write his law on our heart, right? And so the purpose for why God writes his law on our hearts is so that we would delight in the law of God. But prior to that, we have the work of the law. We could say we have the operations of the law on our heart, the effects of the law. Yes, ma'am. You know, I was going to say, I always used to, I always said that wrong mm -hmm. for many years. Mm -hmm. When I was evangelizing or just talking about the lost, I was saying, I, I would tell them, I would say, well, you know, these things are true because God's written his, his law on your heart, but that isn't true. And, and if I you make that mistake, I mean, you know, can't jump down each other's, hey, you said, you know. Right. But I did say it for years and years and years, and it wasn't until you, I think, taught, taught me that was wrong. Until you smited me. No, Troublemaker. <laughs> Always causing trouble. But then it really made sense as he shows the, 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 specific, the specificity of the Bible uh -huh. and how accurate it is, how right it is. You know, that, yes. that, yeah, that's true. The unbeliever doesn't have, there's a special, we have special, it's something special that we have. Yes. So they know something, man knows something in his conscience without the aid of God's Bible, God's word. Right? He knows something in his conscience of the law of God, of the divine requirements of God. He knows something of the morality of God. Now, this coalesces very good with creation. So turn to Romans, Romans chapter 1. Well, you're probably already there, but in Romans chapter 1, you know this verse. It says in verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So to some level, to some degree, man, even though he is outside of God, not saved by God, Gentiles without the law of God, creation itself is enough for man to, especially if man is in his right mind, he's able to deduce that God is eternal, so that he looks out into the vastness of space. You know, especially now, people have the advantage of looking out into telescopes like the Hubble telescope and all this, and they're just, more than the ancients, they're able to look out into space and see that the galaxies go on and on and on, and, and, and yet they don't conclude that God is eternal, or they don't want to give him glory. You know? Somebody who is really infinite created all this seemingly infinite space. The universe is not infinite. It's not eternal either. Okay? It has a border. It has a boundary. Only God knows where. <laughs> but, I mean, space is there to reflect the infinitude of God. The infinitude of God. And not only that, but we're also said, it also says that we will know his eternal power. So something of his power, when you see the planets in their orbit, what is sustaining such massive things, right? Especially now, we know now, we through science, we know more now than anyone has ever known in the history of the world. We know the exact distance between the Earth and the Sun and Pluto and Mars and then the galaxy next door, and we know, we know all of that. And... Um, all of that should strike us 
to know that some divine power has done this. Okay? And I believe they do, they do know. Everyone knows. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the most provocative things that you will say, hopefully, in evangelism is that, is that everyone in reality is actually a theist. They really believe. In the heart of hearts, they know there's a God. See, that's the kind of evangelism I like. You know there's a God. You know in your heart of hearts when you're laying in your bed at night and all your friends are God. Mm -hmm. Right? You know that you're accountable to him. You know that you, that, you're, that you are guilty of transgressing a divine law. Okay? So we just have to trust the word of God that that's what it says and that's what it means and that's the truth. Yes, sir? Uh, I'd like to just affirm that because being an atheist for a very long time, I would, just like you said, sit in my bed, even though during the day I would verbally hate God with every word that would come out of my mouth. I mean, I would even utter things that I would never even think about ever, ever again. Amen. But, um, but I knew at the end of the day, because I kept speaking to him, even though during the day I would just completely deny the existence of him. Right. People fools for thinking. So, when, especially that rings true for me because I used to be on that side of the fence. So, be assured that that text is 100% true. Amen. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. General revelation, let me just read this for us. General revelation makes it possible for all people, all humanity, even all religions, to have some fundamental connection to the Creator. In this way, Paul is able to tell us that all of humanity is offsprings of God and that they find themselves groping for Him and searching, although in vain, to find Him, since He has left an indelible mark on the created order. Um, now let me read to you somebody smarter. This is uh, Burkhoff. Louis Burkhoff, if you don't have his systematic theology, I hope that you will go out and get it as soon as possible. Get the credit card out. <clears throat> don't delay. There is also among the heathen a revelation of God, an illumination of the Logos, that is the divine wisdom of God, we can say, ultimately Christ, and an operation of the Holy Spirit, but nevertheless, it beholds in the Gentile world only a caricature of the living original, which is seen in Christianity. What is mere appearance in the former is real in the latter, and what is sought in the former is found in the latter. So what these theologians are saying is not that all people are God's children, okay? That's not what Paul meant when he said everyone is the offspring of God. It just means that we all owe our origins to God. At some fundamental level, everyone on planet Earth is owned by God. You're, they're his property. They are his creation, his creatures. Although they don't, as Romans 1 goes on to say, though they don't give him glory for that. Now, here's a question I have for you, a deep, profound, theological question. Is general revelation sufficient for salvation? Can it, why can it be that somewhere over the rainbow, no, <laughs> that somewhere in some heathen land, right, as the old 
writers like to say, um, that a person cannot look up into the sky and see, wow, yeah, there is a God. And, and, and he must have made all of this, and he must have made me. And because he sees that, God decides to just save him. Why can it be that that can't happen? Oh. That isn't that isn't atonement. The gospel? It doesn't tell him general revelation does not tell man about Jesus Christ. He can't be saved without knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's very good, John, because I've heard big time Christian teachers and philosophers, okay, very respected, very well paid, lots of books sold, stand in a public arena in front of an audience and say that a person can be saved apart from a conscious knowledge of Jesus Christ. Don't anybody in here ever say that? I know you won't. But you can. Now, what would be a text? Before we go to the text, Chris. Oh, just to add further, further to that, it seems to me that there'd be only one, one of two possible routes, and that is for somebody to go to the person and tell them about Jesus using Scripture. Scripture would be what we have as revelation, or God Himself would have to appear to that person, you know, in a supernatural way. And those are the only two possible ways that somebody could be saved and have knowledge of Christ. So then, what you have articulated is basically that this is not enough, right? I really thought this did a better job than the other one. I'm just wishful thinking here. Just making a mess up here. It's all right. It's all right. Um, so. General is not enough. We need special revelation, right? Right. Uh, some older uh, systematic theologies would say particular revelation, uh, specific revelation, supernatural revelation. Now, now, where do we go to the Bible to find that? Because I agree with you. I'm an evangelical. <clears throat> and I agree that you cannot be saved apart from a conscious knowledge of Jesus. John? Uh, I was going to say Acts chapter 4, Romans is a good one too. But Romans, Acts chapter 4, Acts please chapter read 4, it for us. 11, 11 and 12. Thank you, sir. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builder which became the chief cornerstone. And then the next verse says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And of course, the context of all of that is Jesus Christ. The whole, whole okay. thing is about Christ. Okay. John 14, 6. John 14, 6, which says. I am the way Oh. Any, anything else? Anybody else? A more specific, more exhaustive passage do you think that deals with all of this? Okay, Doug, what do you got? Because how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? <coughs> how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Amen. I mean, that's that's really the passage that you want to hit. You want to go to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 makes it explicitly clear that a person cannot be saved without the missionary enterprise of the church. Why do we have missions here? This is this is a real uh, a test to our, you know, to our methodology, right? Why do we send missionaries to hard places? Why does Hudson Taylor go to China 
lay down his life. You know, why does uh, uh, John Patton go to go to uh, uh, Papua New Guinea? Why does why why do all these people go in all these dangerous places? If man, if you go back to before I erase this, <laughs> if man can by general revelation save himself or be saved, I just think I gave I gave away the barn there. Save himself. I mean. Right? To save yourself is to believe in what is known as autosoteric. Autosoteric doctrine or theology or whatever, which just basically means self-saving. Auto, self, and then soteric comes from the Greek word soteria, salvation. So self-saving. Right? If man can be saved through the, uh, the created order, through general revelation, then that means that man is self-savable, that God needs to do nothing else. Man will take it from there. But everything that Romans 10 says here implies that we need to do more than just rely on creation. We must articulate the gospel. We have to take Christ to people, right? If, as some of these theologians have stated, if God has given to man a measure of light, therefore man responds to that measure of light that he has, either in conscience or creation, that God will, because of his grace and his love, he will impute to him the righteousness of Christ, apart from even knowing who Christ is, then my argument that I would posit is then why send missionaries in the first place? The worst thing you can do is to send a missionary to an unreached people group and mess up the odds that they might respond to creation. Because now you're just heaping judgment upon those people if they reject it. So it makes no sense. Anybody, any questions, comments, or statements, or objections? Yeah, maybe this is kind of the, the, the obvious question in dealing with this uh, why is the person condemned to an eternity in hell for only having general revelation if they have not received special revelation? Why is that fair? Well, um, that's a very difficult question. You know, that's a hard one because it just really gets down to the ethics of the Christian faith. But if we stick to the Bible, um, we know that according to Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the passage that we read, Men are condemned by their deeds. And in the Bible, you know, you find that everywhere. Men are condemned according to their deeds. They are never said to be condemned simply because of God's sovereign, you know, reprobation or something like that. It is always because of their deeds. And so they go to hell, not because they have not heard, but because they have sinned, because they have not obeyed God's laws that were, you know, uh, revealed to them through conscience and revelation. But it is a hard truth. I mean, it boils back down to your premise in theology. If you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, that question is almost unanswerable. Then you will have to go into philosophy. You will have to create some 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 uh, doctrine of middle knowledge, or you'll have to you know venture out into you know people being saved through nat or through uh, general revelation or something like that. You know, which none of that is taught anywhere in Scripture. Yes, sir. I was just, I mean, kind of playing on the other side. I mean, the person who believes that God can use creation as a means, they would say that when they go out, they would be doing so as an added means to supplement what God has already given them. Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, embracing that. I'm just saying that would be their answer. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. I don't know if I understand that answer. Well, I'm thankful that God still sends them, you know, to still get the word out, even though they still embrace, you know, God could use this. They're just going out with additional instruments. They got better samples. Yeah, I mean, that's why they would see it. Yeah, that's right, and that's why. Yeah, I mean, that's why, you know, I believe in the eternal decree of God, that God is working out a specific purpose through all of time, and that God is not responding to individual situations, but he has a plan. He has an eternal purpose, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, that he is working out throughout all of history, human history, and that plan is to save a people for himself through Jesus Christ. That by necessity means that he will not save other people for himself through Jesus Christ. So you're right back down to election and reprobation. You know? Yes, sir. Now, the way you answered Chris's question, I was wondering why wouldn't you have answered it using Romans 9? I mean, would that be inappropriate in any circumstance to say, well, he'll have mercy on who he has mercy in, you know? <laughs> I just wasn't thinking fast enough on my feet. Thank you for that. Yeah. Hey, I'm all about the analogy of the faith. Scripture proves scripture. Any question that scripture asks, if it is meant for us to know, scripture will answer. Okay? That's the analogy of the faith, that scripture teaches or proves or interprets scripture. But the question is, is are we bound by scripture? See, the natural theologian or those that believe that God saves outside of Jesus Christ, okay, he is not bound by scripture. He is bound by philosophy, bound by human reason, you know, those types of things. And it's ultimately, you know, proof of human autonomy and reason. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the word of God, I mean, explicitly teaches, you know, that God sovereignly chooses who he will save. I mean, that verse out of Psalm 147 that Ozzy read, I mean, that's an incredible verse. I had to sit and look and read and ponder and think, how is it possible that the psalmist is talking about what we're just talking about, but at the end he says, praise the Lord. <laughs> praise the Lord for the God of Israel. You know, He doesn't question God, why would you do this? And well, why, would you, why wouldn't you reveal your statutes to all of the other nations? Why would you deal this way with them? He doesn't conclude that. He submits to the sovereignty of God and says, praise the Lord. You see, it comes a point in time where when you get into these sort of outer edges of the sovereignty of God and these issues, that you have a choice to make. Either you will question God to your own destruction, mm -hmm. right? Or you will put your hand over your mouth and say, God, you know, I'd rather be silent. You know, I don't know. Last thing I want is for, to, for, you know, the last thing I want is to have a Job experience where God says, hey, really, you want to start asking me questions? <laughs> Come over here and I'll question you. You better gird yourself up like a man because I'm about to ask you some questions. You know, it's all fun and games until someone loses a limb, right? I mean, we, we, we like to question God, but wow, God begins to question us, you know, um, so that's, you know, that's part of it. Now let's, let's move on here. Uh, and part of, obviously, special revelation here, now we're talking about Scripture. Scripture. And what is Scripture? <laughs> what is Scripture? I mean, that's one way that God has obviously chosen to reveal himself is through special revelation and through Scripture. But what is Scripture? Is Scripture just one thing? 
Is it just one monolithic thing? Is it all the same? Is the quality of it all the same? Yes, I would say yes, it's all the qual qualitatively, it's all the same. Okay. But when you begin to analyze what Scripture is, you find that God in Scripture speaks in all sorts of different ways. Okay. That's why that's not a sufficient answer, Scripture. Because God in Scripture has chosen to speak through all sorts of different ways. Human lips, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 9. God spoke through the mouth of fallible, sinful man. Um, God speaks through personal address when he gives his divine oracles and his, his uh, pronouncements of blessing and judgment to his people. God at times speaks audibly to his people, reveals himself immediately to his people, calling out to Adam, Adam, where are you? Calling out to Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. You know, he, he at times speaks, if you go back to Hebrews 1, in long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways. It wasn't just one way that God decided to communicate his word, but he spoke in different ways ways. Now, um, I think we all, you know, we all agree, special, uh, special revelation has to do with uh, Scripture primarily, correct? And that in Scripture, God has chosen to reveal himself through visions, through dreams, through audible voice, through uh, uh, all sorts of different ways. You have a question? No, I was just saying angels too, right? Through angelic messengers, writing, Exodus twenty. Through writing, and so that would be more of like the inscripturated word of God. I mean, God did write the Ten Commandments with His own finger. The finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments. So, you know, that's what you see. Like, so we've talked about. Okay, we've talked about special revelation, general revelation, and maybe a subsection under special revelation. What other form of revelation is there? Jesus himself. Jesus himself. So what would be called? Incarnational revelation. That's right. God himself dwelling with man to reveal himself. That's why I quoted Hebrews all the way through. Let's go back to Hebrews because there's something to be said here. Is that um, when God chose to reveal himself through his son... When God chose to speak in, through, through the incarnation, um, it was um, as much scripture as anything else, right? And everything that came before that moment was also scripture on par with what was said through Jesus Christ. However, that doesn't mean that there is not a preeminence that took place here. Look at... Um, Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3 again, he said he spoke in many ways, but he says, in these last days, he has spoken to us. And the author here of Hebrews uses a perfect tense verb, spoken, which means spoke in the past through Christ, a matter of a settled issue that has ongoing effects. And the reason why that's important, of course, is because of who he is. In other words, it stresses the finality of this kind of revelation. And it says that because he is his son, number one, um, 
And he appointed him heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory. Now, Jeremiah, Isaiah, those are big books of the Bible. And God revealed quite a bit of revelation to us through that. But neither of those men are God's radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. Um, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. And so incarnational revelation is preeminent in at least this sense that who Jesus was is unparalleled to anybody else that ever spoke or communicated or revealed the word of God to us. So it is the final redemptive revelation that God has given to us in the incarnation. Questions? Um, comments? The Holy Spirit bearing witness unto the Son. The Holy Spirit bearing yeah, witness. Yes, he bears the witness. So not only God reveals, Christ reveals, the Holy Spirit Very good. All going back to Christ. Yes, sir. Yeah, he bears witness to the Son. The, the apostles are promised, right, in uh, John 16, John 14, and John 16 especially, that the Spirit was going to come and that was going to bring to remembrance everything that the Lord had spoken. So, of course, the Holy Spirit is a, is a uh, one of his major ministries is to bring revelation. Absolutely. Through the prophets. I mean, even in the New Testament, you think of the book of Acts. You know, many of the prophets in the book of Acts, like Agabus, daughters of Philip, other people prophesying. Barnabas is called a prophet. You know, people are prophesying through the Holy Spirit and bringing God's word to bear. Um, any other comments or questions? Maybe, maybe a cross-reference. Let's go to John chapter 1, okay? Just to see that the apostles also saw that Jesus was the climax of God's revelatory work in redemptive history. Did you have a... I had a uh, question slash comments. Um, that, that passage in Hebrews 1, would that be an appropriate passage to use as evidence against God specially revealing things today? Yes, I believe so. Yeah, especially in that quality when you see yeah. revealing. You know what I mean? I think there's a level at which... We can all say God spoke to me. Okay, don't get all scared and wigged out. <laughs> but we know what we mean by that. We sure. mean through the agency of his word, through the ministry wisdom. of his spirit, and through the wisdom that he gives believers, God can speak to you personally, individually. You know, lead you in such a way that he's not leading the person next to you. You know what I mean? So I do I do believe that very much so. But but yes, in terms of that apostolic, technical, revelatory sense. Okay, scripture with a capital S, okay, revelation with a capital R. Yes, um, Jesus, when it says that in these last days, it's almost like this is the final, final. installment. Yeah. This, and, and, and it's not even Jesus, right? Because, because obviously after Jesus ascended, revelation kept coming all the way down to the close of the century with John writing probably in the 90s. Okay, so revelation still kept coming. So what that is talking about is that apostolic era yeah. that God chose to reveal. All right, okay? thank you very much. We'll close by John chapter 1, uh, verses 14 to 18. Once more, um, what a glorious thing, because we get to conclude with, um, with Christ's revelatory work, preeminent, climactic, redemptive, right? 
Would somebody like to read that for us? Maybe somebody that hasn't read. Chris, go ahead, sir. 14 through 15? 18. Oh, 18. Okay. Yes, sir. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He comes, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Mm -hmm. Amen. That that idea of grace and truth, that is actually an Old Testament concept. This does not originate with John. Very little of what the apostles, I'm starting to figure this out. Very little, that might be an overstatement, but pastors do that. Very little of what the New Testament guys are saying is original in the sense that it has no Old Testament connection. It has all kinds of Old Testament connection. Grace and truth, that's found in Leviticus. That's found in Exodus. That's language of the Torah. That's language of the law. That God was a gracious God. That God was a, a truthful, faithful God. And what, what John is now saying is that that attribute of God is, reaches a climax in Jesus Christ as he reveals himself to us. Is it any wonder that Jesus, one of his names is the Word? Right? He is the word. He is revelation. Right? And in the book of Revelation uh, 19, 13, it calls him by this name, the word of God. That's Jesus' name, the word of God. Can't get more, more brutal than that. <laughs> that is so good. That's so rich, you know. Uh, we're out of time. Let's pray. Father, um, we have just literally scratched the surface here what it means for you to reveal yourself to man. I pray that all of these brothers and sisters of mine here would would want to dig deeper on their own, Lord, when the night comes, when the evening's winding down, that they would steal away not with a journal, but with a systematic theology book and want to discover more mysteries of the kingdom that you would reveal more truth, more greater facets of who you are to them so that we might know you. We who have your word, we who have the final revelation, we who have the total disclosure of your mind in scripture. Lord, help us to be those that will quest and thirst and search after all of the riches of your glory, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.